Direct from the astronomy capital of Australia comes the Astro Podcast. An irregular series of interviews with interesting astro people about the projects and passions that keep their eyes to the sky. I'm here with Amanda Bauer. Hi, Amanda. Hello, hello. So you're Super Science Fellow for AAO. That is correct. Okay. Well, first of all, I need you to explain what that is. Because <laughs> it makes you sound like a guy and you wear some kind of... Like cape super, or, exactly. you know, superhero sort of outfit. I do kind of like to think of myself as that. I can come in and swoop down and save the situation no matter what it is. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. That's what we need. <laughs> so the Super Science Fellowships come from the ARC, from the Australian government. They decided to fund 100 Super Science Fellows and they split them up across three different sciences and mm -hmm. one is space science. So there are now about 33 super science fellows running around Australia at different institutions, and we have four of them at the AAO. So wow. I was the first one. I arrived in November 2010, and I've been super ever since. So that accent isn't really Australian. So. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> so where did you arrive from? Um, originally from the U.S., uh, and then after I got my Ph.D. there, I went to England and did a postdoc for about two and a half years there. And then I came to Australia. Right. So you've been just about everywhere. I've been around and my accent's a bit muddled now. And it's kind of a chameleon thing. So I tend to sound like whoever I'm, I'm with. Right. Subtlety. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So usually how the podcast goes is that we, we talk about how you got into astronomy, which usually is a really, you know, it doesn't usually start off as you started in astronomy. Yeah. Then we'll talk more about what you're into at the moment. Okay. Uh, you know, your project and what you're doing and then the other things that interest you. So starting from a very young Amanda, <laughs> what, you know, where did you start? What was it like? Were you, uh, you know, into science in primary school or? I think I was into kind of everything. It didn't really narrow into science. I I was pretty good at, at my classes. I didn't really like getting bad grades. So I did work kind of hard and try to to get good grades. And I think I, I enjoyed many different fields. Um, I liked writing. I kind of wrote poetry when I was a kid and I played the piano and I played sports. And so I did lots of different things. And I, I think when I was getting into my early teens or even before that, I would, I was fascinated with the sky constantly. I would always look up at the stars and make my own constellations and things like that. But I, I never met any scientists. It wasn't actually a, a thing that I thought I could do. So mm -hmm. I never quite took it seriously. Um, and I think I started to take it more seriously when in I think 96 and 97, there were two huge comets that you could see from the U.S. And they lasted for weeks and weeks. And I could go outside my door and just see these things sitting up in the sky. And I found them fascinating. And I would get my family to come out and look at them and they'd say, oh, yeah, there they are. <laughs> and be like, but look, they're just hanging there. <laughs> Yeah. So that really got me. And also when I was in high school, I was in the math club. I mean, I I was quite good at science and I was quite good at, at logic puzzles and figuring things out. And I didn't quite realize how much I enjoyed it. Right. Until I finished high school and I went into university and I decided to study French. <laughs> yeah, I can see the connection there. <laughs> because I was a little bit... Well, I had to go to the University of Cincinnati. That was my hometown school. Okay. So I didn't have a choice. And mm -hmm. I actually looked to see if they had an astronomy department, mm. but they did not. Mm. And so I said, well, what else do I want to do? Well, I want to travel. So maybe I can teach English to people somewhere. And I studied 
French for the last few years, and I was okay at it. So I thought, I'll study French, I'll travel, I'll teach English, and that'll be that. But right. within about, um, I don't know, three months, I was completely bored. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't have an exchange program, so I couldn't even go and spend oh. a year anywhere. And I only had to take one year of science as a French major, and I happened to take the one astronomy class that was offered. So I was, I was kind of hooked by that class. Um, right. And I, and our eclectic professor and I went and asked him if um, if I could have a job for the summer, filing papers or doing anything that he would allow me to. And he said yes. And I switched my major into physics, thinking I could study astronomy in every chance I could get. And wow, how did you go for an, from a arts basically um, to a science? I mean, there's you were good at maths, I guess, but there's I was. I I decided kind of one night that I really wanted to go into science. I just liked figuring out how things worked. I liked the challenge of it. I liked the the scientific method, you know, kind of coming up with a guess and then really getting into figuring out how it how it worked. So I wanted to do a science and I kind of went through for, I gave myself about a week and I thought biology, no, mm. chemistry, no, geology, no. And I kept going back to astronomy, but since we didn't have a major, it it didn't seem like something I could do. And then I finally realized that actually astronomy is physics. Yes. <laughs> Which most students Mostly. don't quite realize when they go into astronomy. There is a lot of uh, of mathematics and equations and things that, that explain how things work. Uh, so that's when I went to talk to the professor. And I mean, I, I was very nice and naive and innocent, and I didn't know what I was getting myself into at all. I just made the decision. I'd like to do astronomy, and in order to do that, I have to study physics. So Oh, wonderful. So let's go for it. <laughs> yeah, well, the enthusiasm would have got you through, through any pain in the beginning. I remember telling my mom, because you know most kids will go to their parents and say, I'd like to switch my major. And usually it's from like an engineering and science into some more creative artistic thing. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I think I'm going to switch into physics. <laughs> she said, oh, well, okay. I think, I think you can do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I probably thought French, physics, yeah, both of them, equal job opportunity there. <laughs> All right, so you, so you finished off at uni or what happened then? Yeah, um, it took me another four years to finish my physics degree mm -hmm. and I wasn't quite finished yet. I mean, I hadn't given much thought to what I was going to do at the end of the degree, sort of focused on that one thing for a while. And I had one professor, luckily, who uh, suggested I apply for grad school. Right. And um, I'm glad she did. Nobody else really suggested that to me, but she was definitely a mentor during that period of my life. So I applied for several different universities around the U.S. I actually applied for some of the top schools, and you have to take standardized tests to get into these graduate programs. So as a postgrad, you have to take what they call a GRE test. Mm. You take a general one and you take a physics specific one. And I did horribly badly at the oh. physics one to the point where I saw my score and just started crying and knew I wasn't going to get into these top schools that I applied for. Mm. Regardless of how well-rounded my applications would have been, this one score, they it was just that bad. Mm. <laughs> so um, I ended up applying, applying for a few other schools. She almost, in the end, absolutely forced me to apply for the University of Texas because, I mean, honestly, nobody wants to move to Texas. <laughs> it was, it was... Well, all my friends in Austin, she did not say well, that. <laughs> well, this, is, this was my original yes, thought. Yes, she forced right. me to apply. Fine, I'll apply. I got into the University of Texas at Austin, and they flew me down there for a weekend to visit and visit with all the professors and the students. And it was 
love at first sight. I mean, I yep. absolutely loved Austin from the second my plane flew over it, and I just never looked back. So I'm so sure. glad that she she forced me to do this, and I'm so glad I went to Austin because it just for the science and for the friendship and for the the atmosphere and the music and everything. It was just yeah. a wonderful place yeah. to be. I hear from my friends it's very close to Australia. Well, not today, but climate dry, <laughs> you know, friendly that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really well, nice place. To be. <laughs> <laughs> so grad school went okay, and yeah, grad school is um, as a perfectly masochistic experience as everyone advertises <laughs> it to be. <laughs> yeah, um, but it's absolutely one of the best times of my life. I mean, just the connections you make with people and the adventures that you have, and the amount of stuff you learn. And the whole point of a PhD is to train yourself to figure out how to create new knowledge. Essentially, mm. you're trying to ask questions that haven't been asked before and to figure out how to do that isn't is more of a philosophical thing than it is even a science scientific thing right and so it's it's a challenge and when you kind of you build yourself up to this ultimate test of your of your being of your scientific entity and all this knowledge that you've that you've created and to get through that after you've built it up for so many years is just such a great experience and when you start to come into your own as a scientist or you finally start to feel like yeah I'm actually an expert in this particular field I know more about this detail yes. <laughs> than, than anybody else it's it's a pretty great I mean to some degree it's not like a, it changes what I do in the morning I wake up and have a banana for breakfast <laughs> it doesn't matter <laughs> what I'm an expert at but it's just a, a really great feeling to be able to have that and then and then go on and move forward if you're lucky enough to get a job. So what was the original piece of scientific discovery did you well, <laughs> give my, us? Well, my thesis was called Galaxies Growing Up Over the Last 10 Billion Years. Oh, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> so I look at, um, at galaxy formation and evolution. Right. And how galaxies when we look out now with our telescopes how they came to have these structures some of them are these nice spherical balls and some of them are very flat like pancake looking Mm -hmm. structures and and ultimately the milky way how did the milky way come to be right but it's not the easiest task because galaxies evolve very slowly not a whole lot happens to them in the course of a a human lifetime Mm. so to, se- to make sure people understand the difference between a solar system and a galaxy, that's kind of a confusion I get quite often. <laughs> the solar system is the sun at the center, so solar is sun. So you've got your sun, and then you've got all the planets, our eight planets orbiting around it, and asteroids and comets and things, but it's the sun's system. Now the sun is just one star inside of our Milky Way galaxy that has thousands of millions of stars. So the sun's just one little dinky one. And the sun... And just the same way the Earth orbits around the Sun in one year, the Sun actually orbits around the center of our Milky Way, but it takes 250 million years. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah, so in the course of a PhD or a career or a human lifetime, not a whole lot actually happens in that galaxy. So the, the challenge is how do you study it? How do you study how they change? And what I do is try to, to look at as many as I can. Mm. It's as if you were given a bunch of snapshots of humans at different times in their life. So an infant and an, an elderly person and a teenager and a toddler and an adult. And you were asked to put together what the, a human lifetime was just based on all these little snapshots. So what I do is try to take as many snapshots of as many galaxies as I can in order to try to fit together what that life cycle of a galaxy might be. Right. And it 
depends quite a bit on where the galaxy lives. So if they live in, in nice, dense little cities of galaxies that we call clusters, then they tend to evolve very quickly and very early. Whereas if they live in, in suburbs, what we call galaxy groups, there's not too many of them, so they can live a bit in isolation. And then, then you've got the ones way out in, in the cosmic outback. <laughs> they, don't, they don't really interact very much at all with anything else, and they're just kind of left to their own conservation of angular momentum and conservation of energy and right. things like that. So those, those dense cities, the clusters of galaxies, they represent the biggest gravitationally bound structures in the entire universe. And they formed very soon after the Big Bang. So the Big Bang happened and there was kind of a, a very smooth distribution of stuff around. Yep. But there, it wasn't completely smooth. I mean, it's pretty close. Yeah, <laughs> But it yeah. wasn't exactly. And because it wasn't exactly smooth, gravity started to take over and cause big gas balls, essentially, to collapse. And it was in those first ones where the, the galaxy clusters started to form. And so it all happened very, very rapidly. And these galaxies formed a little When you say rapidly, is that in universal terms? Billions or? of years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. In cosmic time. Yeah, that's right. So if, if the universe is now almost 14 billion years, this yep. was within the first billion or two billion right. years. These right. things were collapsing and galaxies were forming stars and it was very violent and they were crashing into each other and just building up this huge structure. Mm -hmm. um, but in the, in the other parts, in the, the cosmic outback, um, there wasn't quite as much pressure there wasn't there wasn't a neighborly influence on what was happening so the galaxy took its own time to uh, grow its I'm garden. absolutely loving this <laughs> analogy it's like yeah it's working that's well it. so far yeah, that's right. this galaxy it's doesn't true. have to take its trash out because yeah. the neighbor isn't yelling at them. Yeah, that's right. oh that's so nice <laughs> and so um you're looking at at lots and lots of galaxies are you looking at um are you trying to figure out what they're doing now or what they did back then or or the whole life cycle of a galaxy yeah the whole thing so the the interesting conundrum that i'm working with now is mm. that the galaxies that are the most massive now the biggest ones formed so far back in the history of the universe so so early they formed and they already got all their mass together and then they just kind of slowly evolved like they just mm. sat in that it was the big massive building in the center of the city that nobody's yep. going to touch. <laughs> nobody's yep. going to mess with. It just stays there. Um, and then the little things, nothing happened to them for a really long time. So they're just now starting to form their stars. So they're just now kind of starting to grow. And the question is what prevented them from growing, for, for, from forming stars for so long? Mm. We don't mm. really know. So all these these galaxies have a bunch of gas in them and they've got a bunch of stars and they've got supermassive black holes in their center and, and all sorts of things like that. So that the gas that they have is fuel for mm. new stars. So they can either have gas inside of them and they just have to get to a certain state where they can then turn that gas into stars. Mm -hmm. Or they have to have new gas. So somebody has to throw a log on your fire and then it's got new fuel and then it can, can burn. So it needs new fuel, it needs new gas from somewhere else in order to form new stars. Right. So why... Why, if they're all packed together, where there should be lots of gas and lots of fuel, why aren't they making stars? Yeah, so in the big galaxies, in the centres of these clusters, yeah. exactly, what stopped them? Why are they not forming any more stars if there's gas around? And in the little isolated things, they've got 
guess, why hasn't it formed stars? And if they had formed stars, then they'd be big now. They wouldn't be little anymore. <laughs> yeah, they're fairly new stars. Yeah. Interesting. So this, is, this is the uh, the challenge. And the other challenge is that the little things are really hard to find. They don't have very many stars, so they're faint. They're mm. not very bright. Where the big things have tons of stars, so they give off all kinds of light, so they are like little beacons for our telescope. <laughs> hey, here we are. Look at us. <laughs> okay, so are you... Uh, in in your science pursuit, are you looking at everything and then coming up with an idea of why? Looking at what the differences are, or are you going, okay, I think it's this, and then testing that hypothesis against what you're seeing? Yeah, there's two there's two different sides to it. So I'm actively observing, trying to find as many of these galaxies as I can, um, and then I'm using theories that people started to come up with in about the 70s in in very simplistic ways. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to apply those because they didn't have as many galaxies to look at then. So their their theories. It was just they didn't have the equipment to look at them yeah, <laughs> rather yeah. than they weren't there. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's just our increasing um, capacity to yep. collect the galaxy light and store it and manipulate it. Yeah. Um, and it was then that we transitioned from from photographic plates to CCDs. So yep. that that made everything a bit faster. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, so. I'm trying to test these theories and and modify them because they don't quite predict what I'm seeing. I'm seeing they predict galaxies to be too big because they're they don't understand how the stars stop forming stars in the biggest things. Right. Yes. And they also pr- predict the the littlest things, the smallest galaxies to not be forming as many stars as I actually see that they are. So mm-hmm. somehow I'm trying to modify what their theories say. You know, this is—it's <laughs> kind of many different guesses as to why they're doing yeah. these things and trying to narrow down on which one might be the best. If it's based on what kind of neighborhood the galaxy lives in, or if it's just on, on the amount of stuff it has, the mount, the mass of the galaxy. Right. So, um, what telescopes are, well, you here at SSO at Sighting Spring? Yeah. Are you, despite the terrible nights we've been having recently, <laughs> this whole season has been pretty awful. It's, it's horrible. What what scope are you using up there, or I'm what are you doing up there? The AAT, so the okay, Australian Telescope, the the four meter. This one is uh, kind of our our workhorse, our powerhouse. Yep. I'm working at the AAO. I'm working with a group that's called Gamma. It stands for Galaxy and Mass Assembly, and we are slowly collecting a database of three hundred thousand galaxies, and they live in our local universe out to about four billion years ago which is a pretty long time frame mm. for us to be looking at galaxies. And it's a pretty big number over that time frame. So we take the images of the galaxies and identify them through a different telescope. Um, there was one that the Sloan Digital Sky Survey used in New Mexico. So mm. that's where we originally find these galaxies, just from their, their snapshot, their picture. And then we go with the AAT and take a spectrum of them. The AAT has this wonderful instrument called 2DF, which is a two-degree field. And with it, you can actually take a spectrum of about... 400 galaxies every hour. So all night, as yep. long as the weather allows, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we're t- collecting 400 spectra an hour of these galaxies and understanding from the spectra not only exactly how far away they are, which is one of the least trivial things in mm. astronomy to <laughs> yeah. figure out, um, but also what their chemical makeup is. And from that spectrum, I can determine how many stars it's forming and right. how much fuel it's got in order to form new stars. Sure. So that's one thing. Um, since I'm in Australia and there's a huge radio astronomy community here, lots of good dishes, I'm trying to learn how to how to do that and what sort of science I can extract out of those big dishes. 
Sure. So next week, actually, I go out to parks for the first oh, lovely. time. I get to use parks. I'm so excited. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I've told my whole family to watch The Dish. Yes, that's right. Oh, brilliant movie. Brilliant movie. And it's a, it's a great place to visit, really is. And um, I don't, I've forgotten the guy's name, but there's a guy down there that has a really interesting story about the lost um, Apollo landing oh, video yeah. stuff. So if you grab him, I'll find his name out for you and give it okay. to you. Oh, amazing story. Hi, this is Amanda Bauer. I'm a super science fellow at the Australian Astronomical Observatory, and I just wanted to give a quick plug for my uh, my blog and my Twitter feed, which is under AstroPixie, and you can find that at amandabauer.blogspot.com or in Twitter under AstroPixie. Thank you. Star formation in a galaxy. <laughs> the stars form and then they move down the arms. Is that right? Like. Ah, so we'll move yeah, through the arms? a star will. F- you've got one gas cloud, yep. and you've got several stars that form within that cloud of gas. Yep. And it's not necessary that all the stars will stay together there. So they kind of move in circles around the center, mm. and maybe one of them will will actually push ahead of one of the spiral arms, and then it goes a little bit faster, and then it kind of crashes in to the spiral arm. So that spiral right. arm is actually just a a collection a bit more dense collection of gas and dust and so when a star breaks free from it it moves around a little bit faster and then it crashes into the next spiral arm and then it moves slowly through that spiral arm and then with the next one because i've always thought of it as like if you're spinning around with a um skipping rope or something in your Mm -hmm. hand that it's something that's you know (laughs) it's not that you can actually get ahead of it that it followed behind you that sort of thing well for an isolated galaxy these stars mostly move around the galaxy kind of in circles yeah. and not necessarily along the spiral arm. Right. If two galaxies come together and merge, their gravitational interaction causes their spiral arms to completely break up. And yeah, so that makes the irregular all, ones. Yeah, all the gas shakes up. And when that happens, the stars do funnel down into the center and the gas funnels down into the center of the galaxy. Okay, okay. And then slowly these galaxies kind of do a little dance of gravity around each other and, and become one galaxy. And after time, um, conservation of angular momentum, conservation of, en- of, of energy Physics. causes <laughs> Physics, <yay. laughs> causes this galaxy to spin and then slowly it, it flattens down into ah, a pancake again and okay. then reforms its spiral arms. All right. And where does dark matter come into all of this? Well, just throw out the big one there, won't you? <laughs> That's it. Sorry. <laughs> I can do it. I have no idea. So I'm going to ask an expert. <laughs> um, well, in an individual galaxy, dark matter lives throughout it, but most of it is sort of on the outskirts. So what, okay, so... what we observe is that, well, what you would think that would happen is the same thing that happens in the solar system. You've got the planets nearby the sun move very quickly yep. because they feel the sun's gravity very strongly and they're, they're nearby. Whereas when you go out from the sun, the speed at which that planet travels is dependent on the mass of the sun and the mass of that planet, the distance between them and everything in between them. So everything between that planet and the sun. And in our solar system, there's not a whole lot of stuff between there. So a planet on the outskirts like Jupiter, or if you go even farther, Neptune, they start to move much, much more slowly. You'd expect that thing to happen with a galaxy, 
you've got most of the matter, most of the material, the stars in the center. So you'd expect those stars to travel a lot quicker. But as you go farther and farther out, you do have, have these stars. You can see them along the spiral arm, but there's, there's not that many of them. If you add up all those stars, and you calculate how fast this star way in the outside of the galaxy should move, mm. it should be moving a lot slower than the one on the inside. Oh, okay. But it doesn't. When we watch that star, it moves just as quickly. I mean, it's flying around the outside of the galaxy way quicker than what it should be according to all of the stars that we count up and add up and say, okay, it's got this much gravity, it's this far away, it should move this fast. So it moves way quicker than it should. And what we conclude is that there's something there creating gravity, but it doesn't produce any light. And so it's dark. But it has gravity, so it's matter, <laughs> so it's dark matter. Mm. Um, so it's prevalent inside of galaxies, and it causes the stars at the very outside to move a lot quicker than they should be based on the, the things producing sure. light. Well, the other thing you've got to talk about if you're talking about galaxies is supermassive black holes or oh, black holes. They're fun, aren't they? Supermassive. That <laughs> yes. is the official word that we use. I think people yeah. try to attribute that to the band Muse, but no, yeah, actually they got it from the astronomers. <laughs> um, so yeah, almost every galaxy that we've observed has a supermassive black hole in the center. And this is something that is about a million times up to a billion times the mass of our sun. So if you take a million of our suns and just smash them down into this yeah. tiny little spot in the center of the galaxy. So it doesn't produce any light, but we can watch the stars in the very center of our galaxy orbit around it very quickly. Mm. And then we can say, okay, we see these 10 stars orbiting around something that we can't see, and we see their velocity, the star's velocity. So we can calculate independently what that massive thing has to be. And it's, you know, a million times the mass of our sun. It doesn't give off any light, and it's sitting there, and it's... It's not going to affect us. I mean, our sun or things out in our neighborhood have no idea that there's a supermassive black hole in the center. Mm. It could be anything. Mm. Are your plans for now to continue in this area of study or is there something that you go, oh, I'd really like to have a look at that? Or, Well, I am fairly fascinated with this whole question. Um, not one question, but just how these galaxies evolve. And, yeah. Um, I wish it was more of a simple question like, I'm looking for planets. Look, I found a planet. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> or, nope, haven't found a planet yet. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not quite that easy. So there's lots of different ways that I can try to attack these problems by looking at galaxy clusters in the distant universe where they were young and they were first forming and they're still pretty violent and trying to see how those look different than, than these massive clusters in the local universe that mm. have evolved over more time. And so how do they actually change? How do they relax? Is there a hint of something that has caused them to stop yeah, forming yeah. stars? So those are the kinds of, in addition to looking at 300,000 individual galaxies that live in different kinds of environments, I'm starting to look at individual cities of galaxies to see how that individual city has evolved. Because mm. as we know, every city has its own little personality, yes. its own little quirks, and that's <laughs> yeah. true with, with these galaxy clusters as well. Right, right. Um, the amateurs always uh, online always ask me to ask the professionals whether they actually go out and observe for pleasure. So do you ever get, you know, do you do solar observing or just for fun? Um, I don't. Or, not, or you just look at the clouds. Thanks, exciting spring. Yes, I look at the clouds. <laughs> That's right. Um, Lots of clouds. When I do things on an amateur level, I, I generally don't have any equipment. I like to just look with my eyes. Yep. And I, yep. especially coming down to the Southern Hemisphere, because it's like a whole new yeah. universe. With, you and can so much better. 
It really is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with the small and large Magellanic clouds yes, and the southern and easily cross seen from and, here. and Orion kind of all backwards and upside, upside down. down. <laughs> Makes me a little dizzy sometimes. Um, and now with Venus and Jupiter out so brightly yeah. and Mars just looks so red. Right yes. now it's, you just say now it's called the red planet. I yes. understand. It looks so, well, orange, I guess it really yeah. looks. But oh, red. it's been redder. Yeah. Uh, a couple amazing. of years. Oh, no, be about. Six years back, oh, you know when it was huge, oh, yeah. really close. It was amazing. I think was when it was really close. Yeah. Um, and I have a little feed on Twitter that tells me when the International Space Station will pass over, so I like yes. to go out and wave at the ISS. Yeah. Say, Hello. It's been quite bright. I, I get know. that one too. <laughs> I noticed on your website you seem very um. Well, I don't know if you class yourself as a skeptic, but you have skeptical kind of talk. <laughs> like, Skeptical leanings. Yeah, leanings. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah. So, I mean, do you have anything to say about that um, or not? Um, well, I just, I like to try to convince people to think about things, to not blindly believe in just yeah. anything that a politician or a political party or a religion or any of those people. Yeah. I mean, even even your family, honestly. Like, it's just best for you to actually think about things and figure out why it is that you believe something or not and yep. read about it and see what lots of different people are saying and kind of come to your own conclusion. It's, it just seems a little bit silly to blindly follow one thing based on You're, strangers or yep. just because it's been done in the past. I mean, these yep. are not really good reasons as far as I'm concerned. So that is definitely the basis of, of a scientific study is you try to ignore as much as you can of what's been done before. You don't want a bias going into it. You want to have your observations and your conclusions derived from that. And you build upon the theories that have been done. I mean, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel over and over. But if, if, I, if what I'm finding isn't in agreement with somebody, even if they're some head honcho, big wig person, then I have to believe what I'm seeing. And I can't just believe what that person's been saying. So. And I, I asked that question because you're a woman after my own heart. <laughs> and I, lo I love that people are now standing up and saying these things, you know, and running the risk of their family never talking to them on Facebook ever again. When they go. But it, 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 I find that very interesting and, and quite um, uh, exciting, I think, you know, for to, to first have a woman in astronomy and science and whatever, but also to stand up and say those things as well, mm. which... Not many people have the strength to do. Well, it's an interesting lesson traveling so much because not only do you have to have a bit of a, a thick skin mm. to um, to just up and move to an entire different country without having any friends or support or anything, but also just the lesson of seeing how things are done in different cultures. Mm. And regardless of even what the language is, that definitely ties into the, the heart of a culture. But Things are done in so many different ways, even subtle things, and it's okay. It works. It doesn't have to be done the way that, that I did it when I was growing up or the way yes. that, that my country does it. There are a lot of lessons that can be learned from just watching other cultures and other people and other families, and I think that we sh would benefit from embracing those sorts of lessons <laughs> and saying, yes, I do it this way, but it's okay to do it the way that you do it. It works. Yeah. I'm not 
there's no reason why I should make you do it my way. Now, we yeah. can sit and have a little discussion, and I say, oh, it's a bit more efficient this way, or, you know, I find it very fun to do it this way. Yes, and we yeah. can learn from each other and teach each other, but there's absolutely no reason that I need to force my opinions on you. Something as disciplined or seen to be as disciplined as science can embrace, you know, the human side of things and that people are human and have their own opinions <laughs> and, as you said, ways of doing things. What is a day in the life or you know, a, a night while you're up here? So what what do you do? So I usually wake up at three or so. Oh, God, little... I got you up early. Sorry. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. I didn't mind. Um, I try to go out and get a little sun and get a little exercise and um, then go to dinner. They have Sue. Oh, my gosh. She can cook some amazing meals up there. It's, mm. it's one of the secrets. This is one of the best um, observatory food places yeah. in the entire world, I have to say. <laughs> Now good. you'll have everyone up at lunch. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> going to be applying for a telescope time <laughs> yeah. just so they can eat Sue's wonderful food yeah. <laughs> and all the food up there. Um, and then, uh, depending on what season is, you can go up to the dome and and watch the the sunsets. Sometimes before dinner, I have to go up and and focus the spectrograph and just make sure that everything's okay for the night. Sometimes you have little hiccups that you have to deal with before. Mm-hmm. Um, and then. We watch the sunset, and then we have to open the dome, and then my job this time is to actually um, work the instrument. So there's a night assistant who actually operates the telescope and points the telescope in the right direction and makes sure the dome is open and pointing in the right direction. I actually turn the instrument on and make sure the spectrograph is working right and and do all turn all those knobs and buttons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, and if something That's breaks, really technical. <laughs> well, I've got about six computer screens in front of me, yeah. but the software isn't exactly. And so I think modern. I've got a photo of it up there. I'll put it on the um. I'll put it in the screenshots. It's oh, pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it works for the most part. Yeah, but it does crash occasionally, and you have to to get out there and kind of climb around with your little pliers and flashlights and mm. and make sure nothing's completely twisted around or that's kind of fun in the middle of the night <laughs> mm. um, and then there's another set of actual astronomers and they get to determine which science target we're going to look at so we all kind of take turns in those different roles uh, while we're up there is that time. like thumb wrestling for it or something <laughs> <laughs> yeah we we sort of isolate one person to be the the astronomer in charge for okay. that night and they get the final decision but we certainly have some democratic discussions <laughs> about what should be done <laughs> Um, and then we stay up and monitor. The worst nights are completely the ones that are in the middle. Sometimes they're clouds, sometimes they're not. Mm. The fog comes up or maybe it's going to rain. So the data's not that good, but I mean, you either want it to be completely clear and yes, we're observing and the data's great and we can reduce it and it's wonderful, or you want it to be completely cloudy. There's no chance you're opening up mm. and then you can get some work done or read a book or, you know, listen to music, watch movies, whatever you want to do. Yeah. But it's the thing in the middle where it's just, oh, mm. do we open now? And you get sucker holes where the clouds clear for mm. 20 minutes and you get everything ready and you rush and rush and then the clouds come in again. Oh, what a pain. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's a bit dramatic and... Yeah. But it's... It's rewarding. I really like it. Oh, great. Well, it's been lovely talking to you, Amanda, and I really I, I really have enjoyed this. Well, well, thank you for inviting me. It's been a nice uh, break from the, the windy, rainy, cloudy mountain. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm really disappointed about that. Was last night all right? 
Um, well, it was windy. It was so impressively windy. We couldn't. Mm. I couldn't really go out into the catwalk without being afraid I'd just get knocked <laughs> off. It was something like sixty kilometer an hour gusts up there. It was, yeah, it was very very windy. I was, and I was up there the other day and it was raining and windy oh. like that. And I, had, you know, that you had to take your hard hat off in case it killed someone. <laughs> <laughs> so we were worried and my hair's could, uh, flying out of this photo. <laughs> we wanted to try to catch koalas as they went flying. <laughs> yeah, <that's right>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been really extreme up there, which is uh, unusual. Um, really, it's you know unusual, but it's know. one of the the worst seasons on record as far as observability goes. Yeah. But we're still up there for a few more nights, so we're hoping we're trying. We did collect some photons last night, but I can't say oh, they were the the yeah, cleanest, the best, yeah, the best quality. <laughs> well, it's not looking too bad, but I think they're predicting some more rain tonight. What a shame! I'm look, just looking out the window. As long as I can see Venus and Jupiter, oh yeah, sunsets, well, then I'll be yeah, oh, reasonably and it's happy. The thing, when it's a bit cloudy, the sunsets are amazing, exactly. beautiful. Clouds are wonderful for the sunset, but kind of <laughs> yeah, horrible right. for the rest of the night. That's right. <laughs> Unless it, someone comes and wakes you up at 3 a.m. It's, it's clear, it's clear, quick. No, see, that's my job. <laughs> Gosh, I think you can tell that Amanda and I had so much fun doing this uh, interview. If you enjoyed it, please pop into iTunes and leave us a comment and a rating. This helps other people who are interested in astronomy to find us on iTunes and to tune in and listen. So five stars is always appreciated. We love feedback, so you can also drop over to the Astro Podcast site, www.astropodcast.com, and leave us some uh, leave us a message. Say hello. Tell us where you're from and where you're listening from. Love to hear that sort of stuff. Just a quick note also from the Astro Podcast news section. Um, is the fact that Astro Podcast has been invited and has agreed to join Astronomy FM. This means the podcast will be repeated on uh, a weekly basis on Astronomy FM on their live streaming Astronomy radio uh, site. So you can also drop over to Astronomy FM and listen to one of the Astro Podcast episodes that will be playing there weekly. Um, at the, when you're listening to this one, it's on Saturdays. Uh, it could be at any time, depending on when you listen to this. We've got some great interviews coming up. And if you know someone that you want to get interviewed, or if you are someone that you want to be interviewed, want to be interviewed? Anyway, um, you want to, uh, me to interview, then please send me an email. And of course, I've got to pimp the Twitter and Facebook account. So Facebook is facebook.com slash Astro Podcast, and the Twitter account is twitter.com slash astropodcaster. <laughs> no, it's just, uh. I'm signing off now and looking forward to bringing you another exciting episode of Astro Podcast next week. Thanks for listening to the Astro Podcast. Why not leave a comment and rating on iTunes so other people can listen in too? If you want to nominate someone to be interviewed, then send an email to alison at astropodcast.com and she'll do her best to make it so.